This is Maya Thomas. I am the DSC podcast producer, and I just wanted to give you a quick rundown of DSC as an organisation before we get started. DSC is a team of 33 people across Australia, all working together to bring specialised training and consulting expertise to providers in the disability sector. Our focus is on helping providers to survive and thrive in the NDIS, and our purpose is better outcomes for people with disability. All right, here's what's going to happen now. Hello and welcome to our podcast. We are DSC. Your turn, you're the boss. Disability Disability done done different, different. candid conversations. Hope you are ready because we're starting. Hello and welcome to Disability Done Different, Candid Conversations, the DSC podcast. I want to introduce Evie Northell, my trusty sidekick. Hi, Evie. (laughs) And Maya Thomas, our producer. Hi. Today we're talking to Kevin Stone. Kevin has a phenomenal experience in the disability sector, 40 plus years, I think, and we'll talk a little bit about that. For me, Kevin, I have enormous respect for Kevin for the work he's done, and I think he's almost universally respected by the sector, except for the people that hate his guts, and that's only a few of them. So we're going to be talking to Kevin about being an advocate, but he's also the parent of four children, three of whom have a disability, and one of whom is an NDIS participant, so he's bringing a very coal-faced perspective um, to a lot of the conversations about disability, so welcome, Kevin. Cheers. So, Kevin, we went, we met way back in 1989, and at that stage I was working with the Victorian Council of Social Service, VCOS. You were starting Ballard, and I often tell people the story of my motivation to stay in disability and to get a leadership role was I was convening a meeting of CEOs of the disability sector, and at that stage the people who were coming were all male. And if I convened a meeting that was about the fringe benefits tax of salary packaging, it, the place would be full of people completely interested in what we had to present. If I did one on person-centred planning or individualisation, we'd have very few CEOs turn up. And I pretty quickly congealed an uh, ambition to become a better CEO than those um, blokes and to do things differently. But in your experience of 30 years of the disability sector, are we doing things differently? Are the CEOs still more likely to be self-interested than they are in participant-centred processes? I think we probably had the same experience back then and and probably reacted in different ways. Um, I guess, for me, it's that self-interest factor that's always fascinated me. Um, I use the term, well, we all use the term empire builders. The disability sector back then was being dominated it was. by large-scale disability empires. Yep. And within those empires, little emperors thriving. Yep. And some people would interpret me saying that um, as if I'm against big organisations or against organisations. That's never been the case. It's that which is that it's the attitude that those professionals working within those organizations bring to their work it's the culture of the organizations that can very quickly turn into it's about them it's about their power it's about their empire and the behavior of those representatives of those organizations in meetings being about i'm here to attract business to my organization to me to further my career even at the expense of the very people that they are at the table talking about. Even and we, we see it a lot, that ego-driven growth stuff. It's we, ego-driven. It's, it, look, the reality is it's something about human nature. Yep, it is. It, it's, 
it's not as if people in the disability sector are any any better or worse than anyone else out there and in, yeah. in the business sector ego is what drives people the desire for power drives is what drives people. people generally yeah but in human services when our mission is to and our job is to empower people with disabilities what we see is organizational cultures thriving at the expense of empowering the people that they are there for so you ask me have things improved i would say things have got worse i would say that some of the very things that we've done to try and fix that culture or fix that approach we've we've basically made worse particularly in this sort of market environment where you know an organization uh, an organization will thrive or might thrive according to the number of people they attract what we're seeing is organizations actually capturing and closing down access to information for their participants denying them opportunities to really make choice or to exercise choice and freedom um, and, and capturing people so so that was something back then but it, but it, but not to the same toxic level that we're seeing now it's interesting what you're saying about organizations capturing customers and it's making me think of two things or two like quite troubling trends that we see the first is organizations that we see when we talk about marketing talking about a lifetime customer value and so they're really looking at how can they support somebody from cradle to grave in yeah, this way of maximizing revenue yeah. and really not thinking about the implications for that about potentially creating a dependent support relationship and how that totally reduces the organization's incentives to build the informal supports in somebody's life or to reduce the need for paid supports or even just you know if there are a consistent level of paid supports through someone's life thinking about that you might not be the best fit for them in 10 20 30 years time i just want to jump in there evie and, and don't comment kevin because it's a whole nother train of thought but we got rid of the concept of tra cradle to grave 20 years ago and now people are talking about it as though it's okay mm. but come back evie and I guess the other thing that's coming up for me is thinking about the role that support coordinators play, or I should say that they don't play often enough in creating variety in people's life and stopping them from being captured in organisations. I'm hearing of a number of organisations who are now offering support coordination packages. And what that means is that they'll do the support coordination so long as you also purchase your direct supports from the organisation, which is just a total, like it's an oxymoron. There's no need for somebody to have support coordination if it's already a foregone conclusion that they'll purchase all of their supports from that same organisation. It's just crazy to me that people are marketing their conflict of interest. I want to segue there because I, I, we've got so many topics to talk to you about. You, you mentioned markets before. One of the things we wanted to ask you is we, we're moving into this quasi-market. It's not a real market. If you've got cap prices, this is not an ordinary market. We're moving into a quasi-market and we're seeing real market failure. It's not quasi-market failure. Where do you see the worst of the market failures with the NDIS, Kevin? Uh, without a doubt, the area of complex needs. Uh -huh. It's very, very difficult to find services that are capable of responding to the needs of particularly people with intellectual disability and, and, and autism and behaviours of concern. Um, some of the most flexible responses we're seeing are through self-management of families, but often at great cost to the families themselves. Yep. We, 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 we're not seeing innovation, we're not seeing flexibility, we're not seeing responsiveness from the service sector. And I, I think that's a critical failure and, and you know, I'm conscious that the, that the agency has different initiatives to try and address it and we're, we're certainly giving feedback and um, we're involved in those processes and it's really difficult 
That's Probably. interesting because um, both of you and I, Evie's had a fair amount of contact with Sarah Forbes from your organisation. When I have contact with you, with you, I think Evie's getting the same response from Sarah as I'm getting from you. It's intense frustration. It's intense personal almost angst around what's happening with people with complex needs. It's just not okay. Well, I think the personal angst is a reflection of the fact that for 20 years we railed against a system that we all knew was broken but even within that, we sensed that there was desire to try and address the problems and fix the problems. And we felt we always felt as as limited as the Department of Human Services might have been in funding, we always get got the sense that they were trying hard. I wish I could say that about services now. Um, I don't see that. I can see it in the agency. I can see in their own way they're, 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 they've struggled to understand what the issues actually are. Uh, there's a whole story in there about their failure to, the, the failure of their mechanisms to hear the stories from people with disabilities and families and, and to take them seriously. And, you know, we've had to fight hard to get them to actually take these stories and these issues seriously. Yeah. Um, so the first thing about responding to, to the crisis or to the problem is to actually understand that there is a problem. And for a long time now, I don't believe that they understood there was one. They yeah. are hearing it. Um, such is the agency that they're, they're dealing with so many problems and so many issues it's very hard to get them to focus on on this particular problem and to come up with we, we've got a lot of time we've got a lot of hope invested in the complex needs pathway and the uh, the approach that they're trialing there and you know time will tell yep. whether, whether yeah. that works can but, I ask you can, can I jump in and just ask do, do you remain a true believer with all these issues you're confronting because and again yeah. I'll just re reiterate that we see lots of people, a lot of people say they're struggling, it's okay, it's going to be okay. When we see you, you guys are valid, you're really seeing the pointy end. Can you stay a true believer when you see things are going so hard? We run an advocacy training program and one of the chief things that we talk about is the need to remain hopeful and, and to be optimistic because if we advocates don't have hopefulness, then what have we got to offer anybody else and how can a person with disability or a family come to us if we're despondent and you know have no hope so yes we, we have hope uh, we have optimism but I have to be honest here and say there are times and there are days uh, where it just looks pretty bloody bleak so I'd like and to take pick you up and ask you how you get up out, out of bed on those days so about five years ago so I've seen you lots of times during your career about four or five years ago I, I met you in Brunswick Street and you were busted you were yeah. down to your last um, sense of hope and it's all it's all shit and corruption I'm out of here Valid's about to die everything was was over this was about four years ago I think yeah um, how do you keep going how do you get out of bed well it's the energy and the hopefulness of people we support uh, we've got an amazing committee. We've got an amazing organisation. Five years ago, we had a different political environment. Sure did. And we had no support whatsoever for, for advocacy. You know, it, it is hard uh, to keep on fighting when no one actually believes in what you're doing and when there are, you know, d yeah. things laid down in your path. Uh, I guess my nature is and the nature of people associated with Valid is that we, we do like a challenge. And, and we will we will rise to those occasions and we will fight back. I, I guess what, what, what I want to say about the hopefulness that we have, I actually don't, the question for me is not do I have confidence or hope in the NDIA or government or anybody else. 
because my experience is that that's just so variable. Yeah. Depends on who's heading it, what government you got in, what, yeah. what, which particular favourite of the day they're listening to in there, yeah. um, and what particular fad they're chasing after at any particular time. All of those things are variable. What doesn't vary and what doesn't waver is our confidence and belief in people with disabilities and, and what they bring to this. And, and our job is not about all that other stuff. Our job is to empower people with disability to be the best possible advocates for themselves, to stand up for themselves, to stick up for themselves. So no matter what is thrown their way, they'll be equal to the occasion. And, and that's, I think, that's what keeps me going. I mean, we, we just recovering this week from our having a say conference last yeah, week yeah, yeah. when you see the difference that that conference and our advocacy makes in the lives of people it's not it, it's yes we achieve outcomes but the best possible outcome is that people actually believe in themselves uh, people and, and when they come to that planning meeting when they come to that when they come to making that complaint they will do it with power we had a session at the conference last week uh, we released our new Staying Safe videos, materials around uh, abuse and neglect. We had a, an o audience of people with disabilities who just one by one around the room uh, began to disclose the things that had actually happened to them. And I took the roving mic around to them and just one by one they started telling stories they'd never told yeah, before. Yeah. And that's the, that's, that's the stuff that keeps me going is that uh, this makes a difference in people's lives. And if you can if you can harness that and bring that into the market, then the market actually might be able to respond. At the moment, the market's dominated by the agency and by providers. The only way this NDIS thing is going to work is if people with disability and their families have equal power, bring power to the equation. Yep, yep. And so for so many of our people, um, that's just not the case because they've been kicked around, they've been treated like shit, uh, and their confidence is down. Uh, the only way the NDIS is going to work is if we all support the concept of informed and demanding consumers. If if we bring information to people, empower them, build their confidence, then they'll sit at the table. They'll demand better than they, than they've had, and and that's the ch you know that's the challenge that we all face. What about you, Dad? Are you still a true believer? Huh. <laughs> I didn't expect to be asked that. Yes, um, the short answer is that it's a, it's a really easy yes, but it, I think it's 10 years before we see the hopes and the, the aspirations come through in the NDIS. Sort of segues back to the hopes and aspirations, Kevin, in a sense that back in 89, we never would have dreamt that the government would commit to 1% of GDP. We never would have guessed that the politics of people with disability could be as powerful as they were with the Every Australian Counts campaign. So you've got to say we've made some, not we, but you know, yeah. the sector has made some very significant, you guys have made some very significant gains in that 30 years in a voice being heard. You wouldn't want to be a politician in the next election saying they're going to ditch the NDIS or cut it seriously. So we've seen some change there in the politics, haven't we? Absolutely. I think that's probably... The biggest takeaway from the last you know 10 years or so is and this is going to sound really corny but faith in the australian mm. community faith in australia as, as a yeah, fair it's, cool. it's, it's pretty bloody cool yeah you know <laughs> particularly when you look at what's happening in other countries around the world you yeah. know trump's america for god's sake yeah uh you know what we're talking about here they would brand us you know pure socialism but 
it expresses you know the very best intentions of, of of what Australia is about, and it does make you pretty proud. And 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 you know, notwithstanding all the problems that we we're, we're seeing with it, uh, it's it's a pretty good base upon which to build a um, a fair service. It is. I would like to go to some of the basics of the scheme with you too, Kevin, and some what I think are myths in the broader community. Now that you're talking about the improvements in the broader community. I think the broader community believes that the NDIS is all about supporting people with a wheel in a wheelchair to get a university education or to get a job. Mm. 60 to 70 percent, it's probably closer to 70 plus percent of the people are going to have a significant cognitive disability, not a mild one, a significant one. Another 15 percent are going to have mental health issues that are high enough or significant enough to get them into the NDIS. So we're looking at the overwhelming majority of 85 percent or more of people finding it difficult to represent themselves at various times. Yet the scheme seems to have been written, a lot of the legislation is written, as though people are going to be able to undertake their own planning with very little support. I'm going out there, but where would you go with that? Well, I guess the question is, where? what have we done to address it? Because that's been true right from the beginning. From the moment the Act was drafted, it was clear that there was very little understanding of the needs of people with intellectual disability. Yep. And Who you might the majority. Yep. And you might recall for the first year or two, we conducted a campaign uh, making that point yep. that they really needed to hear the voice of people with intellectual disability. And to be fair, the agency responded by establishing the intellectual dis- intellectual disability reference group chaired by Rhonda Galbally. Yep. And I believe that's made a big difference. I think Rhonda's done a sensational job of bringing together a group of people from across the country to, to hear these to hear the issues the particular issues i'm not so convinced that the issues have been translated into action by the agency but that's something upon which we're, we're constantly working the supported decision making issue is one that you know has been constantly uh, talked about but very little action has been taken to ensure that people with cognitive impairment are supported in their planning processes and and in their decision-making processes, yeah. that takes investment. And, I, and let me just, you know, put in a plug there. There's a lot of talk about it, but very little understanding that that work of supporting people to make decisions, to consider their options, has been the main work of individual advocacy organisations across these con- the country for the last 30 or 40 years. And it's so disrespected and so poorly understood. It really is. It really is. A little plug for us too, Rhonda Galbally is on one of our earlier podcasts if people want to listen to Rhonda talk about the personal becoming political. So let me jump in with, um, I'd like to hear a bit about your personal story and you were the principal of a special school before you started at Ballard mm-hmm. and you've adopted kids with disabilities. So tell us about that journey. So my, my journey actually began when I was about six years old and my mum was the director of one of the first day centres for people with disability in Australia, the Christie Centre in Mildura. So I spent a lot of my early years at the Christie Centre and most of my friends were people or kids with intellectual disability. Um, And then when I left Mildura, 16, 17, I got a job or different jobs in um, different places doing work. So uh, St John of God, Yarraview, terrible, terrible memories of that place. Yeah, yeah. Um, wor- working for a year, I, I drove a bus for a centre in Geelong and did their gardens and, and learnt that I, I'm not a good gardener. 
Uh, but a reasonable bus driver. I was a reasonable bus driver. They actually, that was uh, 1973, 74. They actually sponsored me to do my special education, uh, which was pretty amazing because I was just a bu- uh, gardener and bus, bus driver, driver, but they sponsored me to go off to the Institute of Special Ed. Uh, I did that, came out as a teacher of uh, in special at Heidelberg SDS. I did that for a year or a year and a bit. And then I became principal of a special developmental school when I was 24. Wow. After a year and a half of teaching. Yeah, yeah, which was pretty cool. So I had, and it was a brand new home environment facility up on the Murray River at Cobram. And that was a trip. That was... uh, So where does the adoption kick in? So we'd been... So I started as principal in Cobram SDS at 1979. And every holidays, I'd come down, my wife and I would come down and would take kids out from Kingsbury, where I'd taught at Heidelberg SDS, and I'd take a small group of kids back up for holidays. And one of those kids was uh, uh, Damien, and Damien was the cheekiest and the um, probably the most obnoxious little buggy you could ever come across <laughs> him anyways, but he was just fantastic. And he had the, uh, he had the quality of calling me Dad. So he couldn't help it. Couldn't help it. No, I loved him, and uh, we adopted him in 1981, I think it was. Um, he came up and lived, you know, lived with. We had a, a farm at, at Cobram, and um, then our other two daughters. So Damien was the only son we ever adopted. Then we had our two daughters. Uh, I won't say their names, and then our son, other son later. It was, it was always interesting because we always thought Damien was going to be dependent on us for the rest of our lives and uh, couldn't have imagined that uh, both our daughters were going to have very serious car accidents oh, wow. and, and develop other dis- yeah. disabilities. Um, you know, few people can ever predict that or imagine that, uh-huh. uh, but that's certainly given us a, a different insight into, into what it's all about. And right now, you know, on a, on a personal nature, and I won't get too emotional about it I hope but you know Damien who has always just been amazing he's just such a so energetic so fit uh, and I always I always thought surely with all these fitnesses he's going to avoid the perils that other kids with other people with Down syndrome uh, experience but nah he's 49 and he has premature dementia and all those skills that you know he developed over time he's just losing them one by one very it's very sad it's very mm. sad and I you know it's that I guess um, we, can, we can talk about the vision and the and the values and and um, all the positive stuff about disability which obviously you know we do but we can't forget that for lots of people the effects of disability is fucking crushing yeah yeah let's finish we need to wind up with how you stay sane, Kevin, because we talked about this before, but you write books. Mm-hmm. You write fiction and non-fiction books. So let's give a plug to your latest book. So my latest book was Dead to the World. My first book was Faith, mm-hmm. and I started writing that back in 1988. Roland, you'll remember this. Remember when um, the Labor government promised that, uh, or announced that it was going to close Kalula? Mm-hmm because of revelations at the community visitors mm-hmm. and there was a strike yep. 
and some of us went and volunteered yes. that night. Mm-hmm. Remember that? Yeah, I do. The stuff I saw that night was just ho- so horrifying to me that I went home and immediately started writing a book. And I wanted to try, wanted to try and express the horrors of a place like that in a way that people out there in, on the streets would actually relate to it. It's not enough for just us in the disability sector to know these things happen. They won't change until we change the attitudes of people out there. So I thought, how do you go about getting these messages across to mainstream? So I thought, right, I'll write a murder mystery because that's what you know gets out there. And, and uh, I wrote it. It took me a year. Uh, and it was shit. <laughs> and, and so I wrote it again, and it was shit. And I wrote it another 20 times over 20 years wow. before I finally got it not shit, um, <laughs> or at least in my views, my view, um, and published it in, uh, so it would have been 2008. That was called Faith. But now you've gone darker. Well, uh, De- Dead to the World, I pu- uh, published, and I have to say self-published because I haven't found a publisher who actually gets my point. Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, people can be their own judge about that. So De- Dead to the World. On Amazon Kindle? On Amazon Kindle. Yeah. So I want to finish up and, and thank you, Kevin. Thank you for a couple of things. One, thank you for doing this podcast. But personally, having been associated with your career for 30 years, I want to thank you for the work you've done mm-hmm. for people with disability in the Australian community because it's been very significant. It's really clear through this podcast that you haven't strayed from your values at all or not for very long if you have. And um, thank you on behalf of our community as well. Even if that sounds a bit corny, it's very sincere. Thanks, Kevin. Yep, sounds very corny. Cheers. <laughs> Thanks. You've been listening to Disability Done Different, Candid Conversations, created by Disability Services Consulting. Emphasis on consulting there, folks. We do consulting and training, even though people still ask us, do we do consulting? So if someone's had enough of listening and wants to do some talking with us, how would they go about doing that? They just um, look on the website, contact us, and... That's disabilityservicesconsulting.com.au. Links in the show notes. Thanks, folks.